You're listening to Global Health Voices, a podcast by the Singh Health Duke and U.S. Global Health Institute, and I'm your host, Amina Mahmood, Deputy Director of the Institute. In our first series on Global Health Trailblazers, we'll speak to a variety of guests who have well and truly made their mark in global health. Join me as we hear their inspirational stories as they share their journey. We'll talk about impactful moments throughout their prolific careers, their observations about global health, its evolution, and key issues of our time. So today we're going to speak to Dr. Joanne Liu, or should I say Crusader for Global Health. Dr. Liu gained this title when she was featured in Times Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2015 for her incredible contributions at the front line of tackling the Ebola epidemic. At the time, she was the international president of Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, a post she held for two terms from 2013 to 2019. Currently, she's back in her home country tackling COVID-19 in long-term facilities in Quebec, Canada. She is also a member of the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, established by the World Health Organization. Dr. Leo has spent over 23 years working at MSF, dealing with some of the most difficult and challenging moments in our recent history, from the tsunami in Indonesia, the Haiti earthquake and cholera epidemic, working with refugees, survivors of sexual violence, and serving in conflict zones around the world, then the Ebola epidemic, and now COVID-19. It takes the toll to simply recall all these inflection points, but Dr. Liu has been on the front lines and dealt with all these situations. So thank you, Joanne, for joining us from across the world. It's my great pleasure and honor to chat with you today. So, you know, kind of as I mentioned to you when we first set up this podcast, you've recounted your experiences working in MSF from a number of different angles, both very practical on the ground challenges, as well as bringing international attention to human rights violations. So I want to use our time today to really focus on how does one learn from and apply the lessons learned from this wealth of experience. For instance, in one of your recent interviews, you mentioned the difference between working from a well-recognized international platform and your current experience of working in a long-term care facility at the local level. How do you navigate and overcome obstacles you might face in achieving your goals? Do you have advice for people working outside the system on how to circumvent hurdles in their path, you know, drawing from your experiences? Well, thank you very much for the question. I think that it's about being able to contribute. You may be able to contribute at the macro level or at the micro level. But the thing is, for me, the importance is to be able to be part of the solution. And so what is quite different right now is, is when you have a platform like uh, Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, then it's a whole organization that can put its energy, know-how, and action towards a specific issue. While you're back at home as an individual, then you have to decide how I'm going to translate the knowledge that I have accumulated over the last few years in a concrete and positive way towards COVID-19. So it's a, it's a completely different way of tackling the problem. But I was fortunate enough that I'm a pediatric emergency physician, so I went back to ER, emergency work. And as well, I did some voluntary work in uh, elder homes because they were basically lacking staff just to care for people. And in addition, I was able to contribute in different sort of consultative committee for the government at federal level and at provincial level. So this is the way I could contribute. But if you want to keep people engaged in tackling a crisis, you have to make them part of the solution. That's the key for me. 
Yeah, well, so I think certainly the way we all have to kind of contribute and learn how to deal with this crisis, you know, you point to the importance of dealing with it at every level. And I hope people can draw, you know, encouragement from that position. But again, kind of looking at your previous work experiences, how does that inform your contributions to what you're doing at a global level, which is working with the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response? So how do you bring that experience into your contribution? Well, I think that it was a very, very privileged position to be the international president and basically experience crises at what I call the ground zero level, where the teams are working at the front line, for example, in Ebola center and trying to figure out you know, what is the path in the Ebola center, how do you protect yourself, sharing with the staff and the patient the daily fear that it is to fight or to care for Ebola. And as well, being at the macro level with world leader and just say, how do we respond to that? How do we come together to find response to people in the eye of the storm of Ebola? It allows you to give you, I would say, a depth of understanding of a crisis as well of this possible solution in a very, very different way. For the panel, I think that what I bring is this very core but vital and essential knowledge of what it means to be at the front line, as well as being at the decision-making level and the helicopter view, and understanding how you cannot somehow inestricate the politics of health, even if you should put always people before politics. Yes, absolutely. So are there some key recommendations that are coming out of the panel that you know, can be applied to countries across the globe? on how they should be dealing with this? Absolutely. I think that where we somehow missed the boat initially is failing to recognize the magnitude of the threat when the public health emergency concern was declared on January 30th, 2020. And this does not apply to Southeast Asia, actually. It was basically we're on the starting block and reacted right away. But the rest of the world somehow, despite this declaration, sat on their hands for weeks. And just trying to figure out, you know, what should they do, looking, thinking that it was really far. And I think that many, many countries fail to prepare for the worst case scenario. So one of the things we learn in tackling epidemic that becomes pandemic is the fact that you have to prepare the worst case scenario. It's always an exercise of humility. Somehow, as it's going to storm around your country when it's coming, it will basically put under the spotlight every single weak link of your healthcare system. And this is what happened here in Canada and many North Hemisphere countries is in the elder homes, we realized that we were absolutely not prepared because it's a place of living, it's a home for elders, but it never been really a place of active care. And all of a sudden, elders were being really, really sick and it became an active place of caring we didn't have the manpower to care for that. And we lack what is really, really simple. It's called the principle of reciprocity, is when you shield, when you protect a vulnerable population, you have the duty to care for them in terms of access to healthcare, but in terms as well of feeding them, making sure they're not thirsty, the very basic, and making sure that they, their mental health is being cared for. And many countries, I include North America, like the States and in Canada, we shield our vulnerables 
but we did not enact the principle of reciprocity, of making sure that they were well taken care, they had access to care, they were well fed, and they were as well not left alone and isolated forever and being sick on their own without their family and their loved one. Absolutely. I think this crisis has really showed some of the gaps in the healthcare systems, even of the richest countries. And it's probably some things that will take many years to grapple with. But one of the particular issues, and I think you've pointed this out in one of your other interviews, is that many times previously, rich countries didn't have to make difficult decisions on how to allocate resources when they're very tight, as they are in the current pandemic. However, lower resource countries, which you are very familiar with and have worked you know, extensively in, grapple with this on an ongoing basis. They don't, they don't need to be in a pandemic situation to be thinking of how to allocate resources. So are there any some key principles or key factors that one should consider in this kind of allocation when one is forced to make these resource allocations decisions? Yeah, great question about difficult choices. When you are in time of crisis, it's basically a continuum of difficult choices. And one of the things that you learn in times of crisis, and especially in countries with less resources, like in low and middle income countries in war zones, is the fact that you regularly face the decision to pick an imperfect solution. This is part of somehow, I would say, to become what I call a lucid leader, is understanding that there's a crisis, you have to respond imperatively to an issue, but you don't have the perfect solution. And you're going to settle for an imperfect solution. And this is something that you do over and over again. And the key to become successful is to make sure that you don't become complacent about implementing imperfect solution. And you always have in the back of your mind that you have to continuously improve what you're implementing. What happened in many, I find, high-income countries is they could not settle for an imperfect solution. So they wanted to have the evidence for everything. So let's take a very simple example, the mask. We all know that the mask is not a perfect tool to diminish, to decrease the community transmission for the COVID-19. On the other hand, we know from emerging observational evidence that uh, it makes a difference. How? How much? We're not sure, but we most likely know that it's making a difference. What happened in many other countries, they were willing to have the full evidence that it was working. Whereas some other reports say, well, if it contributes only to 20%, it's going to be good enough. And why is it important? Because, for example, if you have an ICU, an intensive care unit, and you have 10 beds, and you're the 12th patient to show up that needs a bed, if you have a measure, a public health measure, that decreases by 20% the number of people who are infected, then you might get a bed in the intensive care unit. This is what we could not come around in terms of the different options that were in front of us in many high-income countries, I find. And this is, a, you need, I would say, the openness and the lucid leadership to be able to accept those imperfect solutions and accept that you're going to need to update them and improve them as you're going along. I think you make some really important points of, you know, not having to wait for every last bit of evidence to be in. And I think that can certainly be applied to as we struggle with the vaccines and which, which vaccines and issues of vaccine hesitancy and questions around them. 
but the need to act and then you know keep building evidence as we go along rather than wait for it all to be perfectly orchestrated before so thanks for that because i think it's relevant you know in many contexts but certainly in what we're struggling with today but also kind of extending that argument of the solutions i know you tirelessly fought for political commitments at the global level to keep hospitals and other health facilities safe during conflict and in 2016 you were instrumental in having the un security council approve this resolution which seeks to kind of enforce respect for international law and impunity for those responsible for war crimes the resolution is passed it was a great achievement but yet on the ground realities very often haven't changed how do you kind of remain optimistic how do you not become cynical in such situations how do you keep striving for those solutions right this is interesting because usually people are putting into question action when you don't have a perfect outcome and that is a good example resolution 2286 about the protection of health in crisis zone is not perfect from many 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 aspects you have first of all to track back a little bit and understand where it came from is regularly still today as i'm speaking hospital may be targeted or bomb inadvertently whichever but what happened in october 3 2015 a hospital in afghanistan in the city of kunduz a trauma center from msf was bombed five times in the middle of the night and killed 42 people and 14 of our staff died as an organization we had those kind of a tragic event happening to us but five precise air strike on a fully functioning hospital was something never seen before and so when it happened we were devastated msf has been working for decades in afghanistan we could not understand that this was happening to us after years of negotiation to have this trauma center open knowing and i've been there before the bombing it was known as the gem of northeastern afghanistan everybody knew that it was the place to be healed when you have a broken bone and so we were devastated when it happened and the population as well because one of the thing you do when you bomb a hospital is of course for us is very tragic because we lost dear colleagues but the main long term impact is you are depriving a whole population millions of people of access to healthcare when they need it the most And so at that point it was very very important for us to do something about that because um you have to understand you know we were mourning we were angry and we had to rechannel that energy in something a little bit more positive and then back then there were many many as were well repeated attack in the hospital in Syria and in Yemen and just is something this stuff and we need to have a sort of a political signal that hospital Are still a place of healing this is a place where people can go and even if you are in kunduz or you are in singapore or you are down here in montreal you know that when you go in a hospital you can go there and feel that you're safe and you can heal in peace this is how things started to articulate itself back then in 2015 2016 this resolution at the un security council was unanimously voted and 80 countries supported that resolution you know after ebola it was one of the most i would say supported resolution at the un security council and many people are asking but it's still happening 
And a couple of things are answered to that is for the people in the field, for the MSF staff, who days in, days out, they are confronted to war and they risk their life at the front line of a conflict. It was key and I would say essential for me that we go and defend them at the highest governance platform of the world, which is the United Nations Security Council, and tell them that you have to protect hospital in a conflict zone. And you should not, I would say, look at them as if it's a place where the enemy could hide and the doctor of your enemy is not your enemy. And we had to go and repeat that at the highest level. And then the other thing is the fact that although it's still happening, it's not exactly full impunity. It has to come back to the UN Security Council. People have to report back about it. And somehow, you know, once in a while, you know, it goes back on people's I say, front concern, and it's discussed again. So very, very imperfect, but I think that this is how things change. And there's many, many rules like this or resolution that initially we struggle to implement, a bit like the Human Rights Declaration. And then decades afterward, it's a text that is a landmark in the humankind. Hearing you talk, I can see why you got the title of Crusader for Global Health. (laughs) Definitely, thank you for those words. And certainly, yes, it points a path of just having to stick with it despite the obstacles. But to change tax slightly, what you've always emphasized is the importance of localization, you know, in your work. But kind of keeping that theme in mind, how do you view MSS work in the context of decolonizing global health? I'm sure you might be aware of the conversations that have been taking place recently on decolonizing global health. And, you know, MSF is a first responder in emergencies. Do you think it needs to address some of the issues of structural oppression, power imbalances that, you know, come about through this global health system of ours? Or is that something that's left for, you know, longer term agencies and governments almost to deal with? What role do you see? And, you know, how can you contribute to this global conversation? Well, I'm not part of MSF anymore as a, as a leader, but I'm still a member of MSF. But I really do think that I always believe that you have to basically preach by example. And so I don't think that MSF is exempt in terms of the way that is working of somehow not being up to a more, I would say, diversified and inclusive way of working. So there's room for improvement. There's a necessity to actively change the way we're working. Right now, it represents about, what, 68,000 people on contract on a yearly basis with MSF working in 72 countries. And the thing is, 9 out of 10 people working for MSF are locally hired. And so, therefore, they are the vital workforce that we have. Yet, they're not the one who have the decision-making job, most of them. Five of our headquarters, operational headquarters, are in Europe. So something needs to change. Something needs to morph into something much more inclusive and diversified. But the thing is, those kind of changes never happen overnight and never happen without a little bit of power struggle because this is what it's about. And so I think that it's difficult. What is interesting is with COVID-19, because of the travel ban, actually, especially initially, a lot of the work was done by the locally hired staff and they were faring very well in most of the places. And then we realized that there, the proof is the pudding. It's happening. 
So I do hope that the organization will continue to evolve and it's overdue and we're not exempt of making it happen within the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you bring up the point of, you know, how COVID-19 has changed even the way the organizations can operate. Can you point to, you know, maybe other transformations in the healthcare system that COVID-19 might either aid or, or hinder in transforming that kind of landscape, the healthcare landscape in a country? Because we're seeing all kinds of different ways of working emerging. We're seeing innovations, but we're also seeing a lot of inequities being exposed So in your view, how do you think this will evolve as we go further? And what has this crisis, you know, this global crisis led in both positive and negative ways? I think there's going to be different outcomes. But I think one of the macro comment, I would say, is the fact that we realize when you treat health as a commodity and you let it, I would say, being subjected to the law of market, it really exacerbates inequities. And this is what we're seeing in many, many, many spots of the world. Even here in Canada, it's everywhere. And so we're going to need to have a deep reflection about that. What is a common good? And how do you ring fence a common good? And do we have this ambition? Seriously, for the time being, I still think that we have a lot of legwork to do in that respect. I think at macro level for me, it's the big take-home message is I don't think we can continue to consider health as a commodity. It's been said before that health is a right, but it's not enacted. When are we going to walk the talk about health? It's for me the real question. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm aware of the time, but do you have any advice for maybe young women looking to join humanitarian health, some advice for them? You know, what should they be looking out for? What should they be doing? You know, what role can they play? Well, I think that young women can have and can do whatever they want. I think the world is there in front of them. And I think it's a question of how you cite yourself. And I would just say, you need to enact the four F. You need to be fearless. You need to be fierce. You need to be focused about what you want to achieve. And somehow you need to have fun. But you should never do that for fame. That would be my basic advice. Oh, I love that. I think I'm going to take start thinking of the four Fs. <laughs> Absolutely. Those are great words to think about how to you know, live our lives, actually. So with that, I'm just going to say that a profound thank you again for sharing your thoughts with us. And I hope our listeners gain as much as I have from them. To our listeners, I want to say, do watch out for the next episode and feel free to drop us a note with your comments and suggestions. Email address is sdghi at dukenus.edu.sg. So thank you, everyone. Be curious, be brave, be safe.